0: Good afternoon, everybody. Whoa, that is loud. How are you all? We put the slackers on that side of the, the auditorium. Hello. And everybody else on this side, I guess. Um, there's still a line in the back for uh, for food, but um, we're going to get started. It's, uh, it's my distinct pleasure today to introduce our speaker. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Sufridini, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the real stuff about Dr. Sufferdini <laughs> after this. So, um, Dr. Sufferdini is the Deputy Chief of Critical Care Medicine at NIH, and I was lucky enough to train at NIH for critical care medicine and um, count Anthony as, as one of my mentors, but more importantly as one of my friends. Um, Dr. Sufridini completed his undergraduate studies at Boston University. He attended the University of Rome School of Medicine and then graduated from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. He then completed his internship in residency in internal medicine in Richmond at MCV and a fellowship in critical care medicine in Pittsburgh. He has been at NIH for a long time and was definitely a mentor for me at NIH and for, for all of the fellows. Um, and it was... It was really nice when, uh, when his son, um, came here for residency because I could repay the favor and, and kind of guide Dante a little bit, um, along the way. But really I remember not just Anthony guiding me from a, um, career perspective, um, in what I was doing, but also kind of being right there when I was training in critical care medicine. Nothing can be more, more daunting when you're a fellow or a trainee and you have a patient who is incredibly sick and to have someone with the skill set, knowledge and bedside manner that Dr. Sufferdini has um at your side while you're taking care of these patients um made learning there and taking care of patients there a privilege and an honor. And um I owe a lot of where I am today to this gentleman standing to my right. So today we're lucky enough to have him come talk to us about will omics improve the diagnosis of sepsis in critically ill patients? And with that, everyone please give a warm welcome to Dr. Suferdini.
1: Thank you, Dr. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very, very kind words. Well, he said I was his mentor. He was really the tormentor, actually, for most of the time. When I showed this title to my wife, she said, well, who is Will Omics? And I said, OK, we're going to have to start over in terms of kind of making this very clear. And I, I trust most of you understand that, you know, Omics is the, you know, the, the, the new word of the, of the 21st century where we have put any study of pools of molecules that potentially affect function and structures of cells are going to have some impact on on what they do, and so it, you know this is a lot of big data, and it, you know will this really improve what we do at the bedside and so uh, hopefully i 'll give you a sense of where the state of the art is, if you will um, so i don 't have any disclosures and I'm, anything I say the federal government may or may not agree with okay so so this is the objectives i 'm going to talk a little bit about the limitations and consequences of the current approaches to diagnosing sepsis, talks about some of the non-culture-based methods to identify pathogens, and then talk about this, there's some very interesting recent studies where they've integrated host response with novel ways of looking at pathogens in acute respiratory failure, and I think that's sort of where the future is gonna go. So what's the difference between infection and sepsis? And I think, you know, sometimes the students ask this question. And so, you know, the consensus definition that came out of the, you know, the JAMA conference back in 2016 was that sepsis differs from infection because it's a dysregulated host uh, response to infection, it's impaired physiologic regulatory mechanisms, and uh, with, uh, you know, with vital organ dysfunction. But it is, you know, the word dysregulated is really used everywhere. But there's no, you know, there's no metric that says, oh, I'm going to get some serum dysregulation and see if I can, you know, see if someone's really septic. So there's no clinical measure. This is all a hypothesis about dysregulation. And I'm sure you have dealt with these and we deal with a lot with immunocompromised patients and talk about dysregulated inflammatory responses. They have fundamentally differences in their, in their, in their, uh, inflammatory responses, but that's the concept. And so, you know, we talk about the syndromes and so we know that sepsis, sepsis is this life-threatening condition that arises when the body's response to an infection injures its own tissues and organs and septic shock is that subset in which there's underlying circulatory, cellular, and metabolic abnormalities that are profound and substantially uh, increased mortality. And so these are shaped by things like microbial factors, you know, pathogen vir- virulence, etiologies, uh, and antibiotic resistance, a lot of different host factors, like age, sex, genetics, comorbidities, underlying diseases, uh, different sources of infections, and these characteristics evolve over time. And there's a lot of biological and clinical heterogeneity. And so you think about this, there are at least 10 to 12 factors here that can be substantially different in every single patient we see in the ICU. And if you believe that there's one molecule that will tell you everything about it, I think that's, not very, that's probably not the correct answer. Uh, and so, you know, this is this little paradigm that we that has been put together, the idea of infection, and in a smaller subset is sepsis per se, where there's life-threatening organ dysfunction, and then septic shock is a much smaller set where there's circulatory cellular metabolic abnormalities, and these, of course, escalate as the person gets sicker, and it's pro- and anti-inflammatory responses with Almost every single system in the body gets involved when a patient has severe sepsis, septic shock, including you know, the central nervous system, autonomic nervous system, hormone, bioenergenetics, metabol- uh, metabolism, as well as coagulation profiles. And so you know, those are things to kind of keep in mind, particularly when we talk about, well, how are we going to diagnose this? So we make this clinical diagnosis of sepsis. How does that work? Well, the presence or the suspicion of an infection and systemic signs, these are pretty basic, you know, tachycardia, tachypnea, leukocytosis, fever, hypothermia, evidence of organ dysfunction like hypotension, oliguria, acute liver injury or lung injury and these things, but the punchline is there's really no true gold standard for the diagnosis and it does ultimately, everything we do requires a good clinical judgment to determine is the infection present and how is the infection related to alterations in organ function. So I think you would all agree beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And indeed sepsis is often in the eye of the beholder as well. So this is a study that Chenu Reed did. Uh, he looked at 94 intensivists who, eight years of median experience, they gave him five different vignettes and said, can you classify them as sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, none, etc.? So Here are the five vignettes. Cardiogenic shock with heart failure, no infection, pyelonephritis, colitis, and hypotension. Gets better with fluids, antibiotics, high normal lactate, COPD, exacerbation. And the fifth one was neutropenia, fever, gram-negative rods in the blood, hypotension, and vasopressors. And these 94 very smart intensivists, you know, the, the Kappa agreement was very poor. As you can see here the one thing that everyone agreed on was that was pretty straightforward neutropenia fever and vasopressors that was in, in purple there everyone agreed that that was septic shock so it was pretty clear that you know there's a lot of subjectivity in even how intensivists look at is the infection present and is the organ failure preexisting or is it exacerbated or due to the infection and so this whole idea of there's objective criteria that are needed uh, and standard methodologies for surveillance, benchmarking, and reporting. So um, that was a theoretical concept. So this study was done in Netherlands, and they looked at 2,500 ICU patients brought to the ICU because of clinically suspected sepsis. And they looked at them in post hoc analysis and said, okay, how many really had infection? 13% had none, 30% were possible, 25% probable, and then th- definite 33%. Mortality ranged from 21%, you know, 18 to 21% on average, but interestingly, when they looked at a multivariate analysis, the probable or definite infection was associated with a lower mortality. Now, that could be, and they postulated that maybe the correct diagnosis or the syndromes that were causing the appearance of sepsis were not properly pursued in in the patients who had none or possible infections. But the idea is that the clinical diagnosis of sepsis corresponds poorly with the presence of infection on their post hoc assessment. So Here's a study that was in CHESS 2011, and they looked at ICD-9 codes, and I can almost guarantee you'd see the same thing with ICD-10 codes. On the left side are the frequencies of hospital admissions, in red, and mortality rate is shown in blue, and so the hospital admissions were raising, you know, they went considerably over uh, uh, an eight-year period, and the mortality rate went down, and everyone felt, wow, that could be really important, and perhaps that made them feel very good about themselves. However... The problem is insurance claims that I think many of you are aware of for either sepsis dysfunction, uh, spe- their specific codes or codes for infection organs are very subjective. They require judgment. Uh, is the infection causing the organ dysfunction? And the people who do coding have many incentives, and one of the incentives to increase the reporting is to maximize reimbursement and to decrease reporting if you're being looked at for benchmarking. So those become like you have no idea in terms of the epidemiology of what we deal with on a daily basis. So the CDC and several universities uh, got together and they said, let's, let's be much more objective and have objective criteria that are sort of almost unassailable in terms of how we look at the incidence and trends in sepsis. And they did this study, published in JAMA in 2017, where if you had blood cultures obtained and you had antibiotics for more than four days and you had evidence of acute organ dysfunction Within two days of the blood culture, vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, increase in crat or, or fallen platelets, you know, that would be your index case of sepsis. And so what they found, almost three million emissions, they had six percent of those emissions met those criteria lots of comorbidities in this patient population. Most of them were older, in 67, plus or minus 16. And then when they looked at this, they found positive blood cultures in 17%, septic shock in 16%, and the overall mortality was 15%. And their conclusion was because of the, the confusion in the literature that the incidence of sepsis mortality or discharge to hospice has not changed between 2009 and 2014. And electronic healthcare record clinical data provide much more uh, objective estimates than claims based data for sepsis surveillance. So the question is does it make a difference if you make a diagnosis? So if you make a specific diagnosis microbiologically, does it make a difference in patients with sepsis or septic shock? And so here's a study that recently just was published from the University of Michigan. They looked at 10,000 hospitalized patients. This is all across the board in the hospital. And they looked at culture negative, about 9,000, and culture positive, about 10% of that, 1,000 patients. And they looked at their survival, and actually the culture negative uh, patients had better survival uh, overall in the hospital population. And when they looked at septic shock, a much smaller fraction of the entire population, actually the people who were culture positive uh, had a worse outcome. But they said the most important factor with regards to negative cultures was the receipt of antibiotics within 48 hours uh, of sepsis. So, here's a prospective study that was done in Singapore, and this is they are asking the question what's the outcome of culture negative and culture positive severe sepsis with appropriate antibiotics? And you can see on the left and right, culture negative outcome was about 35.9%, culture positive with appropriate antibiotics, uh, the, the difference was not significant. And so, how is it that we don't have the ability to document infection? Well, antibiotics. Uh, prior to organ dysfunction, limited diagnostic workup. I'm sure that your workup is not the same as a community hospital workup in terms of sepsis because you have the opportunity to order lots of tests, as we do, and some of the hospitals don't have that capabilities. And the bigger issue is is missing non-infectious causes for clinical syndromes like adverse drug reactions, malignancies, et cetera. So here was their third group that they looked at in the study I just described to you. And they said, if you were culture positive and had inappropriate antibiotics, you did much worse. Well, that's not a big shock to, I think, most people. So it probably does make a difference if you have to be targeted in terms of what your therapy is after you start empiric therapy, if you don't have a specific bug. So here's, here's 5,000 patients that were presented in the hydrocortisone trials of septic shock. The, the adrenal trial was in Australia and New Zealand. The approach style was done in France. And there are all the different sites of infection that were uh, documented. Pulmonary, abdominal, urinary, uh, primary septicemia, and positive blood cultures. And about a third of those patients in both groups, in both studies around the world, had positive blood cultures. Uh, And that's pretty consistent across prospective trials in septic shock. And so, you know... Bacteremia seems to be one of the gold standards that we think about in terms of how we think about uh, sepsis and what in and, uh, and whether someone in, that is our reference point, even though it's only positive in about a third of the patients. So how can it lose its? You know, the gold standard can lose its luster. Well, you know, because everything has to be done appropriately. And you would sort of say, well, I don't have to worry about it. The nurses are drawing the cultures. Actually, it's a fundamental flaw that one needs to think about when evaluating subsequent studies or clinical trials. So it makes a difference if you prepare the skin appropriately. And the blood volume actually is everything. The number of organisms in septic patients is usually quite low. It's less than one colony-forming unit per ml of blood. Therefore, the more blood sets you get, the more likelihood that you're going to be able to pick up a a bacteremia. And each ml of blood up to 10 mls can increase the sensitivity by about 3 to 5%. Underfilling reduces sensitivity because it's a it is a uh, it, it it monitors CO2 production. If you overfill the bottles, you can have false positives. About five percent uh, of the time that occurs. So here is a study that was done in Europe: 59 ICUs, and they looked at the number of blood culture sets per patient and blood volume per culture bottle. The bottom line is it's all over the place in terms of how much volume they put into the bottles and how many bottles are done. And so there was lots of differences in the quality of the blood culture testing, including sample volume and the number of culture sets that were acquired. Here's a study from New Jersey where they said, okay, we have 629 unimicrobial episodes where there's more than three sets, 20 mLs per set of blood obtained over a 24 hour period. And as you can see, set one, set one and two, set one, two and three, you increase your ability to detect bacteremia as you increase the amount of blood that is, is gotten. And so here's a, a, a graphic description of it where small volumes, you're going to pick up episodes of bacteremia. You're more likely to pick up episodes of bacteremia when you have larger volumes of blood that are taken. But, of course, 60 ml of blood uh, is sometimes not always the most opportune uh, thing to do for someone who's very, very sick and or they might might already have a a low hemoglobin or CRIT. And so uh, even though these are the guidelines from IDSA and SCCM, three to four blood cultures with the appropriate volumes. And so... I'm really amazed that this study was published just uh just in the last two months, basically. This is Matthew Cheng, and there's an international study, Canada in the US, and they said, How much are blood culture results altered by antimicrobials in patients who have severe sepsis who come into the emergency room? So they saw 325 patients in the ER, they had baseline cultures, and then they drew a second set after antibiotics were started, uh, around 70 minutes afterwards. And this is not a shocker, but it's documented. So pre-antibiotics, they had 31% of those. 102 people were, had, uh, had uh, clinically significant uh, blood cultures. Post-antibiotics, it went down to 19.4%. So the difference is 12%, but the sensitivity of post-antibiotic blood cultures is 50% of what it is for pre-antibiotic uh, blood cultures. So... You can certainly get your rate of collapses down by doing this, by drawing your blood cultures after you give antibiotics, but it it compromises your ability to know specifically what pathogens are you dealing with. So this is, a, I think, you know, even though this is 2019, you're just kind of thinking, why is it we're in the 21st century and we're still kind of even discussing this? Because it's, it, to me, it was a pretty obvious issue. So this brings us to the whole thing. well, what about other ways of showing that we have infections or not? And I'm going to tell you a little bit about non-culture-based methods to identify microbial pathogens. Some of it has to do with nucleic acid amplification that is targeted or very broad spectrum. And the other one, which is very, very techno, if you will, is the agnostic. You go in with no predisposed uh, thinking about what you're going to find, but you're going to find a lot of things when you do this because you're doing it with RNA and DNA sequencing. So, this is typically what happens. So, you, you have your patient comes in, you draw blood culture, automated blood culture systems take anywhere from one to five days. You have identification subsequently, if it's positive, by gram stain subcultures, MaldiCoF, uh, biochemical methods. That just takes less than 24 hours, and then you can figure out a resistance and antibiotic susceptibility testing. I'm going to focus primarily on tests that are done directly on a blood sample where DNA is extracted, and then there's a bunch of tests that can be done, multiplex PCR, 16S ribosomal DNA sequencing, or cell-free DNA next generation sequencing, which has the potential to do genus and species identification. It can't tell you specifically about whether the protein that is relative to resistance is there. It can tell you about the genes that are present, however, that might be associated with resistance. So what are the advantages of this direct molecular uh, uh, methodologies? Well, the advantages are you can directly detect pathogen DNA by PCR using the selective amplification of specific regions. It's very sensitive and specific. Uh, you can sometimes detect very fastidious or non-culturable organisms. You can look at resistance traits. However, ne- there's always a downside to technology, and what the limitations are... There can be interference of the primers to do the PCR or the amplification by human DNA, blood components such as iron, uh, heparin, immunoglobulins. There are limits of detection that you have to. I, I bring these to your attention because as you look at studies, you have to say, hmm, is this really as good as one as the authors are promoting? These methodologies are highly sensitive to environmental contamination. We have a microbiology lab that's run by a pathologist at NIH. He's a very, very skilled person. And he says when he does sequencing, he always finds Stenotrophomonas in the samples. Well, they're all, it's all over the place in the lab, unfortunately. So you, you have to run appropriate controls to say, OK, well, the Stenotrophomonas is, is not the real pathogen because it's in the environment. And uh, the good news or bad news, you can amplify DNA from non-viable organisms. It could be the, the smoke trail of someone that you have killed with your antibiotics, and that might be very helpful. And we already talked about resistance. So the single genes can fail to identify <laughs> multifactorial mechanisms. And ultimately, you still require culture, for the most part, to look at antibiotic sensitivity. So the one that has gotten a lot of press, and I think if you just came back from SCCM, I'm sure they had a presence there, is the T2 magnetic resonance, which is the idea that you can target DNA in pathogen cells directly in whole blood. So in whole blood samples, you can do this uh, you know, immediately as opposed to putting it into culture. The cells are lysed, they amplify the DNA, and then there is an aggregation with uh, superparamagnetic particles coated with target specific binding agents, and they're put into a desktop ma- uh, uh, platform that is a magnetic resonance. Uh, uh, um, uh, it measures the magnetic resonance where there is a relaxation signal of the water molecules changing their their uh, configuration and that indicates the presence or the absence of a target. A very clever and very novel methodology. And so it's been promoted and was originally approved by the FDA to look at this T2 Canada panel where they looked at five of the most common um, Canada species that we find in critically ill or immunocompromised patients. And the study that kind of pushed us forward was that they looked at 152 patients with positive blood cultures for candida, and then they followed them for one to six days with the T2 assay and with blood culture. And the T2 positive was, was 45% after they started their therapy, whereas the blood culture stayed positive only for 24%. So it had a clinical sensitivity of 89%. But the point is, it's probably detecting viable and non-viable organisms because you've already started therapy. So they've now added a second platform, which is a T2 bacteria panel. And the, that's shown on your right-hand side, which is uh, five different organisms, the escape organisms, Enterococcus, faecium, Staphylococcus, Pseudomonas, E. coli, and Klebsiella pneumonia. And uh, so that's a very, again, a powerful tool that might be very important in terms of, of uh, helping you narrow your focus down in terms of, uh, of how you treat a patient. So how, does this, how would this be operationalized? So here's a, a large study that was recent, just, just published this past year where they looked at 1,400 patients who were hospitalized. These are not ICU patients. Anyone who had a blood culture down in the hospital, of which out of that 1,400, only 6% had, had blood culture positivity, and 35 of the 39, that's 2.7% of the total, were positive for those bacteria, the escape bacteria with this uh, T2 bacteria panel. The time to the positive result was notable. So it's four to eight hours to get that, versus 24 to 52 hours for the blood culture. So you have immediate information that you can act upon, and maybe even narrow your, your treatment strategy down. And the the other positive blood cultures, they had non-escape bacteria, they had negatives. However, they had 146 negative blood cultures that were positive with this T2 uh, bacteria panel. Um, they had a a group of people sit down and adjudicate, okay, maybe 60% of those had probable or possible infections. They were receiving antibiotics and maybe that could account for their positivity, but clearly at at least 40% of those were really truly false positives. So what do they make of that? Well, they said, well, maybe it's non-viable organisms, maybe there's growth inhibition by the antibiotics, maybe it was below the limits of detection for the culture, uh, or transient or intermediate bacteremia, or contamination from the environment. Lots of potential problems, but you still need to think about that as a as a concern. So the uh, the sensitivity and the specificity of the targeted bacteria are about 90 percent. For the, any other organism, it, the sensitivity goes down to 43% with a specificity of 89%. So, what's the role of these rapid diagnostic tests going to be in clinical management? Well, the advantages are you have rapid results of common pathogens causing bacteremia. You can also assess the effects of prior antibiotic administration on pathogen detection, and it might be that that effect may be lessened by this knowledge, if you will. But clearly, there are limitations. Number one, you can have polymicrobial infections, and you won't pick up the other organism that's not on the panel. Uh, The testing of bacterial resistance still requires culture, so you can have a highly resistant pseudomonas that you have to hope or guess or assume that it could or could not be uh, highly resistant. The, The other question is you know, this whole issue of what's called diagnostic stewardship. Do you order this test on everyone who has a fever and hypotension in the ICU or in the ER? Well you're narrowing your focus and you add substantially, obviously, to cost. So you have to demonstrate value. And it is not unknown with the current state of the art, if you will, on how it's going to affect clinical management. There have been several studies where the clinicians have been provided with information, but in in the absence of a very aggressive antibiotic stewardship program, people say, that's good. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep on the broad spectrum that I'm currently on. And so How it is additive or not to conventional microbiologic testing remains to be seen. So the next area I'm going to tell you a little bit about is next-generation sequencing of cell-free DNA for pathogen detection. So as you can see here, this is the needle in the haystack. And I use that analogy because pathogen DNA that is circulating in the body is like a fraction by one-hundredth or a thousandth of the rest of the DNA that is in blood. And that comes into being very important, obviously. So circulating cell-free DNA in critical illness, it's there. Human, there's cell-free DNA in anyone who is sick. Cell necrosis is released by apoptosis from trauma, severe sepsis. It's part of the secretion of the, uh, from tumors, and that's how we do liquid biopsies. Um, cell-free DNA can also be present in donor DNA, And that is used as a measure to look at the acute rejection in solid organ transplant. So they look for SNPs uh, that are only associated with the the, the donor organ. And as that titer rises, you know that the organ, heart, lung, liver, kidney, etc., are potentially uh, starting to have rejection occurring. Well, what about non-human cell-free DNA? And this, is again, gets back to this hypothesis-free approach to test for the presence or the absence of infection. So I'm just going to quickly tell you a little bit about next-generation sequencing. Um, I am not an expert in this, though we use it in uh, research and we use it clinically at the NIH. Uh, And so this idea that you start with clinical specimens that are going to be the host, the normal microbiome, and possible pathogens, you extract and purify their nucleic acids, And that big mixture, you have DNA, RNA from the host and from the uh, environment, as well as from the potential pathogens that are present. The uh, RNA can be converted to cDNA. You can make a library of it and fragment the nucleic acids and add an adapter to immobilize it for sequencing. And then you can uh, start this next generation sequencing of many different reads across. These are millions of reads, like 20 million reads to tell you, okay, what do you have in this mixture? And the analysis is very complex. You, can, you have to get rid of the host reads, the host uh, effect, and then identify the individual species, making up the metagenome or the metatranscriptome. So this is a company called Carius. I don't know how many of you are aware of this company. And they, they came out of a lab at Stanford and they, it, they have a proprietary molecular biology and data analysis that uses deep sequencing to detect microbial DNA directly from the cell-free DNA in blood. And it's a CLIA-certified lab, and you can hire them or you can send your samples to them. I think it costs around $2,500 for a single sample, but you'll get back 1,250 bacteria, DNA viruses, fungi, and protozoa. And you send them 5 mLs of plasma. They do sample processing. They do deep sequencing. And then they have very intense analysis. And it usually turns around in about 48 hours. You know, this has been used um, in, in our facility for very enigmatic infections in immunocompromised patients. But there are several reports, for example, in the literature where they've looked at central nervous system infections that were didn't come up with the usual suspects, if you will. These include leptospirosis, brucellosis, amoebic. Men, uh, meningoencephalitis and different types of encephalitis like Epstein-Barr, Japanese encephalitis. The, my favorite is the variegated, variegated squirrel bornavirus, which is people in Germany who kept squirrels as pets, and that virus is in the uh, is in the squirrel population, and they got encephalitis from it. Um, there's also a very interesting approach where you can diagnose invasive fungal infections, and they showed in a paper that they were able the liquid biopsy was able to uh, diagnose Aspergillus, Rhizopus. Uh, scatosporium as examples of well maybe that would be better than having to take someone for a lung biopsy and then there's a case report about septic shock to a, to a fastidious organism you know the capnocytophaga catamorsis from a dog bite where someone with a profound shock the usual suspects were not coming up they sent it, they found out and that maybe they treated this person appropriately so how about, from a practical point of view, those are the esoterica. What about if you just do blood cultures? So they did that study. It was recently published. They had 348 patients in the emergency room who had sepsis alert done. And they were hospitalized, on the average, about four to seven days. These are not critically ill patients. I think only 8% of them were critically ill. So they did simultaneous blood cultures and then next-generation sequencing. And in the next seven days, they did additional testing. Fluids, bloods, nucleic acid testing, serologies, et cetera. And what was the the overall effect? Well, when you did cell-free DNA next-generation sequencing, they were able, at the end of the study period, to diagnose about half of those people had a specific, credible microbiologic diagnosis to account for their sepsis alert. Using blood culture alone, only 18%. uh, All conventional microbiology, it went up to about 38%. And if you received antimicrobials within two weeks prior, the cell-free DNA was in, insensitive to it. So it was able to get 48% of those blood cultures versus only 20% of the blood cultures alone. So you know, that was very, very interesting, exciting. However, it's important to keep in mind that this doesn't happen like this. It's, uh, it takes about 53 hours to go from sample acquisition to a final answer. So how are we going to apply this to critical illness? It's, uh, the good news is it's unbiased, it's culture-independent. You can screen for many multiple antibiotic resistance genes. Gene expression, however, still requires culture and or protein identification of the specific um, protein that's associated with uh, like carbapenemases or uh, uh, OXA48, etc. Uh, you have to clearly control for environmental contamination. The bioinformatics is a huge effort and, and it is emerging and getting more and more sophisticated, but and there's people that have proprietary databases as long as well as ones that are public and then the turnaround time, turnaround time still remains kind of a, a challenge, if you will. So what about instead of looking for the bug, maybe just looking at the host response to what we think is an infection might be important so can the expression of just RNA in the host itself himself or herself? help to distinguish the presence of infection from non-infection. So it's interesting that clearly multiple clinical, many critical illnesses are syndromes many that come from many multiple causes and underlying conditions. And one would hypothesize that if the entire spectrum of a syndrome has a common molecular pathophysiology, then a molecular biomarker or markers should exist to tell you that it, it is present. So what is the state of the art? Right now, you know, people use transcriptomic data from RNA microarrays. This is not sequencing, just the microarrays, the Affymetrix chips. People put them on the chips. They look at 20,000, 30,000 genes at a time. Is the gene expressed or not expressed? And does it tell you something about the physiologic state of the individual? And these are often because they're, they're, you're required to put them into public databases, a lot of cohorts that will have this information in them. They're not like thousands and thousands of people in these cohorts. They're often, uh, you know, 50, 100, maybe at the most. So that's good when you go across multiple cohorts because it increases your power. However, it has issues related to biologic and potentially technical heterogeneity. And there's a lot of imperfect comparisons. You assume that the disorder that study A did in terms of how they defined the respiratory failure, is identical and perfect in terms of study B. That may or may not be the case, and that is a concern, obviously. And then the whole issue about you have thousands of potential biomarkers can be examined, and false positive associations are much more likely when you have more variables than you have samples in a study. You have twenty or 30,000 variables, you're going to get false positive associations, so you have to have a lot of confirmatory information to tell you what's going on. So I'm going to show you or tell you a little bit about four different studies that have been uh, been published in the last uh, four to five years. So one of the first studies did 27 different data sets, and it was uh, almost 700 patients, and they looked at sepsis versus sterile inflammation by itself, and they came up with 11 genes that were robust they had a good, opera, you know, a good performance under the area under the curve, uh, and these were called the sepsis metascore genes. And the same group then looked at another set of 30 cohorts, about another 700 or so samples, to say, can I tell the difference between bacteria and viral infections? And they came up with seven additional genes, so a total of 18 genes, highly sensitive and specific under the circumstances of their study. Um, what doesn't come out, however, is what happens if you have like uh, influenza and you have staph aureus? Are you going to have the, the same capabilities? And that's not very clear from the study. This was a prospective study that was centered at Duke where they, did, uh, they had uh, acute uh, respiratory illnesses. Um, they had a derivation platform and then a validation, and they had 134 genes to identify sepsis. Uh, Uh, bacterial, viral, or non-infectious causes of these acute respiratory illnesses. And they had pretty good accuracy in terms of what they did. And a a very interesting approach, particularly in febrile infants, uh, less than 60 days old, a study was done, 80 bacteria, 190, without bacterial infections, and 10 genes were identified. Now, it's not always clear and not always obvious that the 11 genes in the Metascore are found in 134 genes with sepsis. Some of them are, but not all of them are. And this gets back to this whole issue of the study heterogeneity and the concerns about that. So this is a test, I don't know if you have used this here, they're called the Septicite Lab uh, test, and it is a Uh, an FDA-approved test. It was approved like three or four years ago, and it looks at four genes, and it basically says these four genes are going to be able to discriminate sepsis from non-infectious systemic inflammation. And they are estimates of, uh, estimated 82 to 89% for that (coughs) distinction. And in the paper that was published two years ago in the, in the, in the Blue Journal, they, they asked this question and they said, okay, how do they decide sepsis versus systemic inflammation? Now, we already talked about or we already sort of, I presented you some of the challenges of the clinical diagnosis. And what what was interesting here, they had three people who were, who were arbiters of deciding, yeah, you're septic, no, this is systemic inflammation, yes, you have these positive uh, cultures or not. And the very last Part that force meaning all of them disagreed about what this what the status of the individual patient was, um, and they still came up with a they had to redo their analysis. So there's been a, sort of a not a, a systematic review that was uh, that was done uh, this last year where they looked at that specific test of four genes, and they said yeah it was approved by the FDA to distinguish sepsis from non-infectious causes, but. They, you know, almost 2,000 patients, 1,000 with sepsis, 1,000 with non-sepsis, they found there was substantial patient selection bias present in all the studies. The sensitivity was 90%, but the overall specificity 60%. And they concluded that the discriminative ability was very similar to CRP and procalcitonin. In other words, it really wasn't that much of a blockbuster And the performance varied across different patient groups and by disease severity. So patients with pneumonia had higher scores with those four genes than other illnesses. The distinction between sepsis and a healthy uh, subject, healthy, was not very clear. And so that's problematic. But maybe it's a metric of how sick you are. But in terms of is this ready for prime time, I don't think so. I don't think it it would add any value to how you manage patients. So what are the challenges we have to think about this? So this is this whole issue of using microarray data, lots of heterogeneity underlying conditions, host immunity, microbial pathogens, lots of issues related to data overfitting in the discovery phase that leads to this lack of generalizability. You either pick the wrong mRNA targets or there was overfitting of the machine algorithms. And the authors, many of, uh, there were two of the authors had done those previous studies. They understand it. They said, you know, you need validation and prospective cohorts where you have locked gene expression panels. You can't, yeah, let's do it move it over here, move it over here. You have to have locked expression panels and locked machine learning algorithms. And, the, you know, ultimately you have to have platforms that are going to give you results in a clinically relevant time. So the last area I'm going to tell you a little bit about is whether you can... Uh, use host responses with the microbial detection to a form of clinical diagnosis. And that would be kind of very novel because we don't do that currently. So this was a study where they asked, can we integrate the host response in an unbiased microbe detection for lower respiratory tract infections in critically ill patients? This is a study that was done at at UCSF. And their hope was, can we improve the diagnosis of lower respiratory tract infections when they're confounded by prior antibiotic therapy, by immunosuppression, by colonizing bacteria in the airways, as well as an altered lung microbiome. And so what they did is they did metagenomic next-generation sequencing of tracheal aspirates of 92 patients intubated for acute respiratory failure. And they did RNA sequencing and DNA sequencing, so the RNA sequencing has the advantage that it will pick up RNA viruses as well as the DNA sequences picks up the DNA viruses, and their hope was to be able to do expression metrics of the bugs, all the bugs the, that are in the you know, as well as the airway microbiome as well as the host transcriptome, and they wanted to identify lower respiratory tract infection positive patients clinically as well as microbiologically from the non-infectious acute respiratory failure. And what they found was that lower respiratory tract infections are associated with a lower microbial diversity. In other words, the predominant bug that is occurring, and this is based upon their sequencing, um, uh, has basically suppressed the diversity of the usual microbiome and the colonizers, if you will, compared to uh, patients who didn't have lower respiratory tract infections. Using the next-generation sequencing, they found you know, 22 causes that were plausible as lower respiratory tract infections that were not picked up by usual microbiologic testing. And they found 414 host-response genes that were upregulated in lower respiratory tract infection versus none. And it's interesting that the lower respiratory tract infections were enriched for innate immunity, which makes a lot of sense, whereas the patients who didn't have uh, any lower respiratory tract infections, they were enriched for oxidative stress. Uh, They ultimately took 12 genes out of that 414 host response genes and used them in several models that they developed. And what they found is that when they tested in a validation cohort, they found that the pathogen metric, the microbial diversity metric, and the host transcription classifier, all had very strong uh, areas under the curve in terms of their uh, in terms of their uh, sensitivity for, for picking up their targets. When you combine them, they did 100% sensitivity, and 87.5% specific, with, with a negative predictive value of 100%. So this is a very interesting pilot study that's sort of saying this is where things are going to go. And it really suggests this novel approach to not just lower respiratory tract infections, but perhaps When we deal with patients who have ARDS and you say, oh, what's the cause of the ARDS? Well, it could be A, B, C, D, E, F, and you think, well, wouldn't it be nice to really be very targeted and understand specifically what the pathogenesis is and what's going on? And so I think this is where the future's going. So will omics improve the diagnosis of sepsis in critical patients? Hmm, maybe. So we have a lot of syndromes of inflammation without detectable pathogens. Um, They may be related to fragments or remnants of known pathogens. Non cultural pathogens or previously unrecognized or uh, novel pathogens. And, you know, whether we have transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics will improve the diagnosis of sepsis, I think probably it's going to happen. Uh, the issue is cost, bioinformatics, and workflow, and the challenge of integrating omic data in real time and, and whether they ultimately affect outcome. So, the last thing I'm going to leave you with is the editorial that was written for that study I showed you where they're looking at genes microbiome and specific pathogens, and they, they, they're on the top there is the microbe targeted. This starts in 1875 where microscopy and cultivation of organisms were done. It took about 100 years before we got urinary antigens. That's in 19, about 1980, and then PCR made its way to detect microbes in about 2000. And then in terms of host-targeted uh, uh, diagnostics in pneumonia, uh, the most one of the most common causes of sepsis: neutrophil count, you know, bandemia in about 1900, sed rate in about 1930, C-reactive protein 1975, procalcitonin 2000. But it's interesting that we've gone from a cellular to sort of a molecular uh, thinking in terms of how we do things. But we re- restricted our thinking to the microbe itself or to the to the host response itself, and not really integrating them. And so they. I thought this was a clever idea. You know, pneumonia is a 21st century problem treated with 20th century therapies and diagnosed with 19th century tools. And so they're very optimistic that. The study I just showed you that looked at microbial metagenomics, microbial metatranscriptomics are the organisms uh, reproducing, and therefore you can get their transcriptomes. And what the host transcriptomes are doing is, uh, is it's really the beginning of a new era in terms of how we think about diagnosing infection. And this is what they came up with. So on the left is what is currently done, and they talk about the, this whole idea of integrating host response and the microbe detection itself. And maybe they're very optimistic, but this idea, for example, in terms of -of point-of-care testing for DNA and RNA sequencing. So is that so far off the mark that you would be able to get real-time microbial metagenomics, metatranscriptomics of the microbes, and host transcriptomics? I don't know how many of you have seen the Oxford Nanopore sequencing platform. It's as big as my finger. That's as big, and it plugs into a laptop computer, and you can do nanopore sequencing on it in real time. Uh, The biggest challenge is actually the data analysis, but that's happening now, and there's the beginnings to do even protein sequencing on those kind of platforms. So it is within maybe a decade that everyone's practice will be transformed by this kind of idea. The idea that you can rapidly quantify the microbial burden and maybe get rapid cytokines metabolite quantification with uh, a lot of uh, point of care uh, bedside molecular quantification. And this whole idea that maybe you can also look at real time host and microbial metabolomics with point of care XL breath analysis. And that is another area that is being looked at because it has potential for diagnosing infection and following infections in a relatively non-invasive way. And with that, I'll stop. And thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. If any questions? I'm happy to answer them. Yes, sir.
0: So, when you uh, um, give those samples from the patients, we have to specifically consent the patients for giving <laughs> samples regarding collecting the DNA and. You've mentioned that you know most of the data has to be you know sent out for analysis. and mean, how that concerns about you know that information being you know, in DNA, you know, being you
1: know sent out outside of the institution. Uh, uh, for the ones that you're doing for clinical reasons, is not a big issue. You know, they're basically your personal inf- the. Patient identifying information is, is either it's linked to what you have, but they get none of that information, obviously. And it's a clia it's a clear certified lab, so it's like sending things to Mayo Clinic or whatever for an outside lab. Um, so. Um, I know of several hospitals that have, I'm sure Maryland has used it, we've used it on occasion, when you're really thinking about immunocompromised patients, stem cell transplant patients, I have no idea what's in their lung, we've looked at everything, we've brought them short of doing an open lung biopsy, and yes, sometimes we've gotten helpful information, I wouldn't say, oh, oh every single time it's a home run, no, I don't think that's the case, but um, you know, they are available, it is not cheap, it's, I think it's about $2,000 per sample, Yes, sir.
0: So, the you didn't give us, we're at CCM. It would have been a much better, uh, I could have understood what
1: was going on in the exhibit <laughs> hall. Um, you guys have no idea at SCCM. I think there are about four or five stands promoting
0: this kind of stuff. I just wanted to ask, what are you doing? Are you just doing that test?
1: NIH, are you doing some of these other things? We don't do the T two the T2 mr It's you know, it's cool. It's interesting. The Canada is probably more important than the patho- than the bacterial pathogen. So we we've not started using it uh, mostly because of cost. In in all truthfulness, um, the other stuff, yes, we do. You know, for you know, for some of the things they do, do sequencing on isolates specifically if they're if they're related to um, outbreaks in the hospital. Yeah in terms of doing sort of like the epidemiology. In terms of routine care, mm, not so much. Again, we've sent things to carry us on occasion. We don't do the T2MR, and uh, so. I should say this, but we do have availability to carry us at this institution, really. Yeah. We we've got a few long-term plans. Right. But, you know, there, there are a lot of new opportunities, I think, that as you start looking at this literature that you can suddenly say, wow, this is kind of, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we really knew, as opposed to just totally empiric, totally shooting our best guess, and we can build our little sandcastles about what we think is true, and, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we're quite incorrect in terms of what we're thinking. I think in terms of the whole host microbiome uh, pathogen detection in patients with ARDS would be really quite interesting because, you know, how you figure out colonizers from real pathogens, how you figure out what the true cause of the, um, of the uh, underlying illnesses, is, is, you know, one of the big things for the next decade. Won't, it won't happen this weekend. So, hey, I think.
0: Thanks very much.